The greatest antidote for fear is competence. And people say, you know, flying a rocket ship, that must be scary. It's a weird question for an astronaut because things aren't scary. Just sometimes people are scared because they're not ready. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Bay Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? As a decorated astronaut, engineer, communicator, author, and musician, Chris Hadfield's illustrious career has made him one of the most renowned and universally beloved figures in Canadian history. His reputation spread into the international mainstream after becoming the first Canadian to walk in space, flying two space shuttle missions and serving as commander of the International Space Station. He then cemented himself into pop culture history for his legendary performance of David Bowie's Space Oddity, all done while floating aboard the ISS, garnering over 27 million views on YouTube. Inspired by witnessing the famed Apollo 11 moon landing on television when he was a kid, Chris's achievements have helped encourage the next generation of explorers and scholars. His books, which include three national bestsellers in The Darkest Dark, An Astronaut's Guide to Life, and You Are Here, have become some of the most valuable resources available for those searching for fascinating and accessible introductions to the field. After becoming the commander of the ISS and chronicling life on board his mission via social media, Chris chose to retire from his story career in 2013 to focus on other endeavors, which have since included his writing. Following his retirement, he was awarded one of his country's highest honors, the Order of Canada. Today, Chris joins me to talk about his otherworldly experiences, the importance of big picture perspectives, the future of space exploration, and what it was like writing his latest book and first fiction, The Apollo Murders. Enjoy. Okay, well, we have Chris Hadfield here with us today. Chris, it's so nice to be chatting with you again. How have you been? Uh, Lance, I've luckily have been healthy and busy, super actively engaged in a lot of different projects uh, and given a chance to exercise in the mornings. I'm doing fine. How have you been? I've been doing well. I, I was same. I think trying to stay healthy, uh, stay connected with the people that are important in my life and just uh, keep busy with projects. And I know you've been very busy with a lot of projects. It's also been a wild year obvious, for obvious reasons, but also in the news with space travel and everything. So I want to cover a lot of different things today, but I thought I would start off with a bit of a bigger, I guess, philosophical question. Um, you know, as someone who has literally been to space, who has, you know, been the commander of the International Space Station and the first Canadian astronaut to walk in space, space. How do you reconcile the expansiveness and the magnitude of the universe and everything that you know about it with all of the geopolitical environmental squabbles that exist and have only ever existed on this tiny blue marble that we live on called Earth? (laughs) You know, it wasn't very long ago that we thought we were the center of the universe and everything revolved around the and then, you know, uh, some people put two little ground bits of glass together and looked and Galileo in the early 1600s looked through a telescope and realized there were moons going around uh, Jupiter. So everything doesn't revolve around us. And the more we study and the more we learn, 
the more we realize uh, just how we are not the center of everything, even life on Earth. And we, we tend to over-exaggerate our self-importance, I think. I think one of the beauties of having started to explore space in my lifetime, because when I was born, nobody ever flown in space, it's still brand new, is that we can actually see ourselves in perspective. For the first time ever, we can actually see the world for what it is, one beautiful, unique, precious, life-sustaining blue ball in, in an eternity of black emptiness. And uh, we still don't know if there's life anywhere else, you know, so it, it really adds, I think, to our uh, our perspective on how we should make decisions. And we're hugely imperfect at it. And we're, you know, by nature, selfish and um, and short sighted. And, and but that's OK. Uh, we've still managed to muddle along for 300,000 years as a species. So I think the technology that allows you and I to talk to each other, that, that is feeding us, that is providing power in our homes, that, you know, that is allowing us to travel that technology that has improved the quality of life so dramatically, so quickly, we need it, mm -hmm. but it all has to somehow fit together in with, you know, everything else that's happening on a daily basis. And it's always been a tightrope walk. And me, I, I'm just trying to find a way to contribute to the quality of life for as many people as possible in a sustainable way. That, that's kind of how I decide what I'm, I'm trying to do next in this complicated world. Yeah. I imagine doing what you've done and, and seeing what you've seen, it must be a very, humbling experience too, just to kind of see everything at your perspective. I have this thing where I zoom in and out to help give myself perspective. What do you do to help yourself see the bigger picture when things seem trivial and when you're looking for purpose or alternatively hone in to stay focused when things seem overwhelming? I do two things, uh, Lance. One of them is, is what you just described, except I do it in time. What was this like 200 years ago or 5,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago? How, how does that put it into proper perspective? Because you can get absolutely panicked about this week you know, or today, and you lose all perspective as to how this fits into normal events in human history. And it's really hard to decide what aren't normal events and, and put things you know, in proportion. I, I think that side of it, not just zooming out physically or you know rolling back on your google earth but but actually zooming out in time you know 200 years ago half of all children died before five years old half of everybody died before they were five years old 80 percent of the world was in abject poverty it's now mm -hmm. at 10 percent. that's only two long lifetimes ago you know yeah. my dad's 87 so two long lifetimes ago that was the world normal so i find that helps me you know, at least balance how, how we're making decisions and, and not get too upset at, at the current, you know, screaming that's happening on CNN or whatever. Yeah. And I think the second is I've had a chance, as you mentioned, to, to have a, a humbling experience that almost no one else in history has ever had. And that is to, to live off the world for half a year and orbit the world 2,600 times and see it for what it truly is. To get a palpable, unfiltered sense of the commonality of the human experience, of, of the shared nature of being a human, a, an adult, a parent, a whatever, on this planet, <laughs> and how almost every single thing that each one of us humans face on a daily basis is shared amongst all the other humans on the earth. That sense of sameness and commonality, we, we tend to take a perverse delight in exaggerating our differences. 
Mm. And I'm not really sure why. I guess maybe it, it leads to a feeling of self-importance or self-righteousness or both. But uh, I am comforted and refocused by looking at the world from uh, a temporal, a time perspective, and also by having looked at the world in its absolute raw state from above for, for so long and so many times. Now, you've written three national best-selling books with a fourth one on the way in October. And before we get to that, I actually want to just revisit An Astronaut's Guide to Life because I think there's a lot uh, going on in the world right now that some of the themes in your book, which for our audience is a New York Times bestseller, can speak to. And so in that book, you mentioned that having a pessimistic point of view helped you love your job. What do you mean by that? And has that perspective changed at all or evolved since the start of the pandemic? And, you know, has there been any kind of shift in that at all? Yeah, in the Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, I I had spoken in schools and businesses, you know, served as an astronaut for 21 years. And in that time, in the talks that I'd given and trying to explain, you know, what it is that astronauts do and how and how do we succeed, I realized there were some recurring ideas that people really found valuable and worth listening to. And I thought, well, I should write those down. And that became my first book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. As you say, the one part, which is um, thinking like a pessimist or what astronauts call visualizing failure, if everything goes well, if all you're visualizing is success, if there are no actual problems, then we don't need leadership. We don't need you know, all of the structure. We don't need lawyers. We don't need policemen. We don't need... Uh, safety rules. You know, if if everything was easy and went well, then life would be much simpler. But it isn't. Stuff goes wrong all the time in everybody's life. That's normal. So the real question is, are you going to pretend that that's not true in your life and just sort of whistle past the graveyard and cross your fingers and rub your beads or whatever, your rabbit's foot or whatever it is that gives you some sort of false comfort? And then be shocked and unprepared when things go wrong. That is not how you fly spaceships. <laughs> Nobody is crossing their fingers to launch a spaceship. We spend a large part of our lives, decades of my life, getting ready for things when they inevitably go wrong, visualizing failure. And it makes you more comfortable because you're not just nervous. People, oh, I'm so tense, I'm so stressed. It's because you're not ready for what's going to happen. If you're ready for what's going to happen, if you've visualized all the things that might happen, and now you've got the high priority ones, and then you've practiced dealing with them, you know, a a relative dying or or losing the job or or your plumbing failing under your house or whatever, doesn't matter. If you've thought about it and researched it and then simulated it in your mind and then maybe gotten and actually physically simulated alone and then with other people, then when it happens, you go, huh. I didn't want that to happen, but I know what to do. Yeah. And that's okay. It gives such comfort and such a great sense of calm. I, I think it's in the astronaut's guide. The greatest antidote for fear is competence. And people say, you know, flying a rocket ship, that must be scary. It's a weird question for an astronaut because things aren't scary. Just sometimes people are scared because they're not ready. And, and the reason that I wasn't scared flying a rocket ship is not because I'm brave. It's because I was ready. And so I view the pandemic the same way. This was a predictable thing to happen. It's like, a, you know, bad weather or, or 
political elections or whatever it is, you know, these cycles, things happen. They've happened in the past. They're going to happen again. Have a plan, you know, recognize that this is normal and build yourself at least some sort of immediate and, and then follow on reaction plan so that when it happens, you're not just overwhelmed and out of control and having to maybe make the wrong decision because you didn't think about it. That applies yeah. to flying spaceships and, and docking with space stations. I think it's a really worthwhile perspective just on, on life in general. And, you, you know, I'm not perfect. Nobody does that perfectly, but I think it's a pretty helpful tool to deal with the realities of life. Yeah, so it's it's much more about being prepared and having contingency plans than than being a curmudgeon, I guess, in, in that regard. Yeah, or just being a wishful thinker or or just someone who's cowering. You know, I don't want to spend my life as a chihuahua shivering, hoping something bad doesn't happen. We're human beings. We don't have to act that way. And all of it really, in my mind, is a personal choice. Just a matter of, you know, how you want to conduct your own life. So you have a new book coming out in October 2021, I believe, called The Apollo Murders. Congrats. The Apollo Murders. That's right. I should tag with your name on it, I think. <laughs> what made you decide to pursue writing a fiction this time around? Well, when I, when I spoke in all of those schools and businesses and at the United Nations and all the other places, you know, I've done the Magilus lecture for the United Arab Emirates for the crown princes there, you know, so I've spoken at a whole bunch of different levels. What I found was people really like the fundamental ideas, you know, and, and how can they get close to this amazing human experience? But people are also just interested in what is it like, you know, how do you go to the bathroom in space? How do you <laughs> eat? What's it look like out the window? Or, you know, what's the human experience? And so the first three books that I've written to some degree talk about the human experience. But what better way I was thinking to let people in on the real reality of it than to incorporate all those experiences into uh, a, a thriller fiction, you know, flying on spaceships. Obviously, it's the Apollo murders, so Apollo going to the moon. And, you know, obviously, there's a really complex plot that goes in there. It includes, you know, the Soviet Union at the time, because it's set in 1973. It's alternative history and with cosmonauts and astronauts. But what is that experience like? And I'm one of the rare people who's in a position to answer that question from firsthand experience. And so I thought it would be fun to challenge myself to see if I had the skill to be able to write a, a fictional book, uh, you know, a thriller action uh, fiction that would put people right there and really feel what it's like to do all of those different things, fly on a rocket ship, dock with a space station, do a spacewalk, walk in the moon, come back, splash down into the Pacific, all of those things. Right. And, and uh, so it, it's been quite a, an undertaking, you know, and I, I had no idea whether I, I could get away with it or not. If I, if I had, you know, the raw skill, but I, I treated it like everything else I've done in my life. You know, here's my goal. What skills don't I have yet? How do I learn those skills? You know, you can learn anything you want online right now, right? So I took courses from Stephen King and James Patterson and, you know, these guys that are really mm. good and, and, and read a whole bunch of books and looked at the mechanics. And then I started writing. And I think it was Heinlein, no, Heinlein who said, nobody can write 500 bad short stories, right? If you want to learn how to write, just start writing. And eventually right. you'll figure it out. I just started writing and I, I 
took uh, time during the pandemic to uh, to write the Apollo murders. And I, I was happy with how it turned out. Obviously, my first draft was way too long because I didn't know what I didn't need to write. I just wrote everything. But then yeah. working with an editor just uh, trimmed it back to a, a normal length, 135,000 words. And, um, and I'm really happy with how it came out. But I'm delighted seeing how other people are happy with how it came out. And I, and I can't wait for October 12th when finally the book is, it's not just pre-ordering, but yeah. the actual book is released and people hold it in their hands and, and read my alternate history of just, as James Cameron said, of just what might have happened. And what did you, I mean, that's a glowing recommendation that you got from, from someone like that. Um, what did you enjoy most about the experience because uh, it's a little bit different as you say writing your up from writing your other books well i learned a huge amount i mean what i've i'm, I'm writing a, another book now you know sort not a sequel but sort of a follow-on idea kind of book another fiction okay and so just all morning i've been lost in research because you, you start writing and you realize huh i don't know how that works if that character would have done that thing next but especially if I've said it in 73 or 74. I mean, what did that place look like that day? And how good was the technology? And what were the societal norms? And how would a woman have, or a man have, in that particular subset of human culture, how would they have reacted that day? And I just had a huge amount of learning writing the Apollo murders and, and talking to you know experts, people that I know, but now picking their brain on these specific things. So it was, it was a huge learning uh, process. And then I really love learning how to write fiction. Mm. You know, how do you punctuate it? And how does a character say things? And, and how do you set the scene without appearing to set the scene? And how do you stay economic in your use of words? And, you know, I, I learned by doing. Uh, it was just a wonderful challenge every day. Get up early in the morning, exercise, sit down at this desk right here that my wife built, and then write for six or seven hours till till a late lunch and do that seven days a week for nine months. And then amazingly enough, at the end, you know, have a book as a product. I, I really learned a lot of stuff. And that to me was the most joyful part of the process. I mean, I also can't imagine how gratifying it must have felt just to have a, a tangible kind of physical representation of all your efforts and research finished at the end that you can share with with the world and, and all your loved ones as well. Yeah, I, I grew up on a farm. My, my mom and dad grew up as farmers. And when you're farming a big field, some days you plow. And when you're plowing, it's great because it's the, the, the gritty kind of the plant-filled earth. And you look back and you can see exactly what you did at the end of the day. But some days you're harrowing, which is just where you take bits that are this big and you break them up into bits that are this big. And you can harrow all day and the field looks essentially the same. So yeah, uh, <laughs> writing fiction for me was very much a, an exercise in plowing. And I'm really, as you say, there's a surreality being able to hold this book in my hand and every single word, you know, came out of my head. And so many people that I respect are telling me like Frederick Forsyth, the guy who wrote the day of the jackal, which I yeah. read as, as homework, you know, to, Hey, how did he write that character and do such a great job in the day of the jackal? He says, this is a terrific book. So I'm like, Holy cow. You know, how did that happen? It's too soon to be gratified because we haven't released the book to everybody yet, but it's extremely heartening and uh, and kind of surprisingly delightful to be at this stage. Space travel has been obviously a hot topic this year, especially. Um, earlier, we saw 
Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos blast off into space. What was that moment like for you watching or reading the news and just seeing kind of this evolution in the space, so to speak? Uh, yeah, a couple of different things. First off, uh, everyone focuses on the two billionaires. I, I would have been pretty disappointed if those guys didn't have the guts to ride on their machine on the first right. commercial flight. You know, that'd be like, you know, the president of the of the vaccine manufacturer saying, hey, I'm not actually going to take that vaccine, you know, yeah. you, you or, or a chef not tasting their own food. What really impressed me about those two flights was Wally Funk, who flew with Blue Origin, you know, in her 80s, mm. it, given a different culture, she would have been an astronaut her whole life. Or uh, Sarisha Bandla, who flew on the Virgin Galactic one, you know, born in India, came to this part of the world, super well-educated, self-made woman, and now in a position to be able, both those women to fly in space. That is what everyone should notice. Not that uh, the people that financed it also went for the ride, you know, but to, to the core of the question, as I mentioned at the start, when I was born, no one had flown in space. So spaceflight is still new. You know, it's younger than I am. And uh, it used to be super dangerous, like crazy dangerous. And people died regularly training or, or actually flying in space. It is just like cars or airplanes. It has gotten safer with time. And that, that's how it ought to happen. And eventually you should get to the point where you don't need to be one of the world's top test pilots just to make this thing work. You know, it, it's like uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright you know, they were not running an airline. Those airplanes, they just barely flew. But you got to go through that stage before then you can find what works and what doesn't so that then you can say, you know what? It's been 30 years, but I think now we're safe enough. Our designs are reliable enough. The engines work well enough that we can actually handle the insurance load of flying passengers on this thing. And, and that's what has happened this summer. To me, that's really heartening. And they're just doing simple flights. They're just going up to the bottom of space and coming back down again. You know, it's not, they're not going to the moon or, or even orbiting the world. But SpaceX uh, is just about to send a, a crew of four non-astronauts with nobody on board who's an astronaut. And they're going to orbit the world for three days, you know, just like the first woman, Valentina Tereshkova, back in the mid-60s. She had an almost identical flight. So we're at that stage now where the ship is simple and safe and automated and reliable enough that four people, none of whom has spent their life training to be an astronaut, can have a pretty good chance of safely getting to space, orbiting the world for three days, and, and recovering back to the ground again. And I'm all for that. It's, it's just like has happened in other modes of transportation. It's still really early. So obviously, it's still got high levels of danger, and that means it's still in complexity, and that means it's expensive, just like air travel was in you know 1920. But every flight, we learn more and the cost will come down. This new vehicle SpaceX is working on, that can drop the cost by another order of magnitude. So everyone's frustrated with how long it takes, self-included. But I'm also pretty delighted with how fast it's actually happening. Now, we talked about zooming out earlier. What's the big picture here? What is the ability to leave Earth? Tell us about being on Earth, if that makes any sense. <laughs> well, you know, what's what's the bottom line of being able to leave Toronto tell you about being in Toronto? You mm. know, if you spend your entire life in downtown Toronto, you are going to have a wickedly distorted view of the world. 
you know, or any one place and choose any square block. Yeah. And in truth, all of us do have a wickedly distorted view of the world because the size of our block is still pretty limited. You know, how much of the world have you actually seen for yourself with your naked eyes? It's pretty small, really. Air travel has radically changed that. You know, you don't just have to buy National Geographic to see what another continent looks like. It's been a, a huge learning experience for so many people to sample at least the, the easily accessible parts of the world. That process is just continuing as our technology gets better. And it doesn't take a big leap to think, okay, well, if, if people can get to the bottom of, of space on the little ships, and now with SpaceX, they can actually orbit the world, then it becomes one more place that people can travel to. And the beauty of this place is not only are you weightless, which is like a superpower and a huge <laughs> amount of fun and the best sleep you will ever have in your life where you don't need a mattress or a pillow and you can float forever. But also right there out your window is the whole frank, unvarnished, real world. Not just some little piece of it, but the whole thing. And you're going to go around it 16 times a day. And so it'll take a while before you know, we can balance that into everything else we're doing and find some way to maybe turn that into a practical business. And it may still only be so expensive that you know, it's one of those things like you know, driving a Ferrari that only a small subset do, but it, it'll be an improvement, I think, to self-awareness of us as a species so that we don't just focus on our own little square. But just orbiting the world is one thing. NASA recently committed to the new vehicle that SpaceX is building as the long-term lunar lander. And it's called Starship. And it's just about to fly around the world. They're putting together the stack down in South Texas right now. So we're not too many years away from not just a couple super or wildly trained test pilots barely getting to the moon and taking one small step and then hurrying home, but actually heavy lift to the moon. Just like heavy lift to Antarctica, where 110 years ago, it was deadly dangerous and nearly impossible to get there. And now thousands of people live there. Or, or New Zealand. Nobody had ever been to New Zealand until 800 years ago because our technology wasn't good enough. You know, so we're at that stage now. And the moon is, has more surface area than Africa mm. and has no life. So imagine if we had mineral wealth bigger than Africa that we have not tapped into or even surveyed properly at all. And that's suddenly now available to us because of the technologies we're building. So I think we will go from you know little hops just to the bottom of space to orbiting the world as one option for human experience and travel to then starting to set up semi-permanent and then permanent human habitation on the moon, a settlement on the moon, just like Antarctica. And it'll grow, it'll be scientific and human experience and eventually, will solve enough problems that we can maybe sail all across the interplanetary sea to Mars. But it's still way beyond our, our level of tolerance of risk for the equipment and machines we've built so far. But that's where we're headed. And it needs to fit into all the problems of the world, of course, just like everything else we do. To me, that's the trajectory that I help with all the other astronauts and space people set everybody on right now. And, and, and I'm really pleased to see the direction that it's going.
Um, I guess building on that and, and last two questions here, what excites you the most about the future of space travel, whether that's the commercial aspect and the accessibility of it, or just the, the innovation and the capabilities from a technological standpoint, what for you personally is the most exciting part uh, coming down the road and in, in, in down in the future, I guess? Well, I think fundamentally, exploration is exciting. You don't remember when you were one year old, neither do I, but you've probably watched a one year old. And if you've ever noticed, we learn how to walk about a year before we learn how to talk because we have to go see, we have to lick it and touch it and taste it in order to develop as a human being. We have to go see, we have to explore for ourselves. That evolutionary sequence didn't happen by accident. Before anybody explains anything to you, you've already figured out most of it for yourself because of exploration. And that doesn't stop when you're two years old. It's how we experience and understand the world around us and beyond. So when you ask about what excites me, trying to experience and understand what lies beyond the world is just as exciting as walking was for me when I was one, I think, you know, mm. it's still as tentative, but to me, that's, that's hugely fascinating. And because I've spoken literally to, I guess, millions of people, I see that reflection of intuitive excitement back all the time. Like how cool is you know, living on a spaceship and being weightless and going to other places. And some people will, you know, be all negative and go, oh, no, I never want to leave, you know, Main Street where I live. But that's not true for most people. It's definitely not true for some people. And there's always going to be a necessity for a subset of humanity to really be earnestly involved in pushing the edges of what we don't understand. And then the benefits obviously come back from that. Think about how just how easy it is for you and I to chat with each other today. Think of all the technology that's involved. And how did people get inspired to invent and develop that, that technology? They didn't get inspired to do it by doing exactly the same thing their parents did, sitting in the same home in the same place. You have to thrill people. You have to give them a vision of the future that's different than the one their parents had. And that's where we radically need to new technologies. If we want to raise the standard of living for nine or 10 billion people, which is probably what our population is going to peak out at, we've got to invent some stuff. We have to find different ways to generate energy. We need to find ways to clean up the carbon that we've already put into our atmosphere. What do you do with the waste? How do you make food production more efficient and, and better for people? How do, you, how do you make all those things happen, even when people are as imperfect as they are and keep doing stupid stuff? For 300,000 years, we've been steadily improving. And that trajectory isn't going to suddenly stop just because we're the ones that are facing the current set of problems. Ours just seems sort of overwhelming because the ones in the past got largely solved, even though they were just as existentially risky for the people in the past. They just seem easier because our great grandparents solved it. How hard could it have been? But we've got serious problems to solve. You know, that, that's a little bit of we're the center of the universe. And that's normal. Our problems are complicated and serious and you know, we got to work on them. But what makes us do those things is, is a vision of a different future. And, and part of that is exploration. And you've got to, a little kid has to be able to see something beyond the mundane nature of day to day life in order to feel that motivation to go get more education and to go see more parts of the world and, and you know, develop all of their skills to the limit. So, yeah. so to me, that is what really excites me is the fundamental nature of it and the rewards that it brings back. 
I love that answer. Uh, last question here before we wrap up, you know, what's your mission ultimately? What gives you purpose? Um, you, Chris Hadfield, just as a person and as an individual and what you want to tackle and what informs the decisions that you make and and your, your worldview, I guess. You know, when I uh, landed after my third space flight, I was the pilot of a, of a Russian capsule. So it comes thundering down through the atmosphere like you're flying a meteorite, you know, and then it hits the ground hard and rolls to a stop. And I've been in space for almost six months and they open up the hatch and you can smell the world for the first time in half a year. And so it was quite dramatically like a birth, you know, of of coming from one complete set of circumstances and emerging into a very different set of circumstances. And so I think when you hit one of those rebirth moments in your life, and maybe coming out of COVID is a good analogy for people to consider the same thing. How am I going to be different now? What am I going to do next based on this new stuff that I learned, the new technology that came along, uh, the new perspectives that I have? And so I thought about that a lot eight and a half years ago, I guess, after my third space flight. And it kind of boiled down to... I want to be as contributory as I possibly can. I want to be a, a useful influence in, in, in the, the whole world if I can, but obviously I can only affect a little piece of it. But try and use all the stuff that I've learned and the privilege that I've had to try and be uh, my little version of a force for the good. And that's why I, you know, I tie into classrooms and summer camps and I, and I work with students all the time. I teach at the University of Waterloo. I, you know, I, I made a master class. I wrote an astronaut's guide to life on earth. I, I work with businesses all the time talking about how to improve what they're doing uh, right down to the personal level. I'm on the advisory board to multiple companies. I'm on the boards of other companies. I help run a big technology incubator called the Creative Destruction Lab that's uh, global. Um, I'm the chair of the board of the Open Lunar Foundation, which is looking at how should we settle other planets? Whose laws should we obey? What are property rights like? How can we do this right this time? When you set that out, it kind of gives me a big list of stuff that I want to do every day and challenges, stuff I got to get done, you know, got to earn a living, got to do things that pay the bills and take care of my family and, and such. But at the same time, spend some time of each day imagining what else and, and trying to change my own skill set to do those things. It gives me a great eagerness to approach the, the challenges of every day. And I sure didn't have to write the Apollo murders, but I just thought, what a, what a fun challenge. See if I can do it. And, if, you know, it's like when I tried to learn to dance. I'm, I'm not a good dancer. I am not <laughs> Ginger Rogers or Fred Astaire. Never going to be. I'm not Michael Jackson. I just... I tried, but never going to happen. <laughs> but gosh, everybody dances. And you should at least learn to dance a little bit, you know, and, and do it to the best of your ability. I, I, I play music. I am not the world's greatest musician. I'm not the world's worst musician. I'm just a musician. So play music and love it and try every day to get a little better at it. And so that's kind of how I, I approach everything and keep setting, you know, my sights on, on other stuff that, that maybe I'll be able to do in my, in my life. And my wife is just a wonderful inspiration for me. She is back doing, I think this is her fourth university degree. She's already completed two years here during the pandemic. And she's run businesses. She's a computer systems uh, analyst and programmer, a business degree. I think this is her fourth university degree, but now it's in fine arts and design and ceramics uh, through uh, Sheridan College. And, and I, I'm just so inspired by that, that, you know, at, at our stage of life now that she recognizes that 
learning and getting new skills and challenging herself and finding what other things she can do that give her pleasure, you know, that attitude towards life, uh, we very much share and kind of enable and challenge and inspire each other to do those things. Yeah, I love that answer. And, and the the pursuit of knowledge and joy. I mean, that's it's very important. So thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. It's been, you know, enlightening. And it's always such a great time chatting with you. And um, hopefully we'll be able to chat again in person sometime soon. I, I expect we will. We'll, we'll, we'll muddle our way through this and enough people get vaccinated that we can safely all meet up again. Definitely. But yeah, thanks. Very, very lovely to talk with you. And I am, I am so excited for October 12th when the Apollo murders comes out to be, it's like, I've got sort of this slightly poorly kept secret, but most people aren't privy to it yet. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to, uh, to everybody's reaction. Chris's influence on young Canadians and the realm of space exploration at large is simply incalculable. And as we continue to embark towards a future full of more question marks than ever before, the presence of strong leaders and scientific thinkers such as himself are more necessary than ever. I am so thankful that I was able to chat with Chris to gain some insight, perspective, and inspiration for the next generation of explorers. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?